let's pray together before we uh, open up God's word. Um, as we pray, I'm going to read a quote from the 18th century Protestant minister, George Whitfield, and, and I'm going to pray this, and I just invite you to, to, to listen in and then join me in this prayer. Whitfield says, it is an undoubted truth, however paradoxical it may seem to natural men, but whosoever will live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. There is an irreconcilable enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And if we are not of this world, the world will hate you. You can be assured where Jesus begins to gather his elect and open an effectual door of the preaching of the gospel, persecutions will come. And Satan and his emissaries will do their utmost to stamp out the work of God. Oh, but in vain. Father, thank you for a beautiful truth. That as we open up your word this morning, we, we pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church uh, revel and, and glory and marvel in the fact that your glorious truth will always continue. That your gospel will always grow. It will always change. It will always transform lives. Lord, we pray um, not just for us this morning. We pray for all the churches in our area that you would open effectual doors of the preaching of the gospel in all of these churches because we yearn to see your name known. Specifically this morning, Lord, I, I want to bring to you and, and, and pray to you and intercede on behalf of a new church plant in town, Connection Church, Richmond Hill. And we pray for Patrick O'Toole and for his team as they launched this morning, their first Sunday, that you would establish the work of their hands, that the gospel would be proclaimed and preached and your church would be built up. Build your kingdom here is our prayer. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Hey, good morning. Thanks for bringing in our, our kids this morning. It's good to see y'all. Um, hey, I'm going to go ahead and warn you. Uh, buckle up. We've, we've got a lot to cover. We're going to be in this thing. I'm going to yell at you for about 40 minutes this morning, okay? Um, so it's been about five weeks since we've been in the book of Acts. So if you're new with us, maybe you joined us for Advent, maybe you joined us with Christmas. Here at Community Bible Church, we want to preach through books of the Bible. So when we launched in August chapter 7th, we began to preach through the book of Acts. So if you're new, you're jumping in maybe mid-series. Mid uh, and then if you're anything like me, and trust me, I don't take this personally, you don't remember what you had for dinner yesterday. So you don't remember what we preached on August 7th. Okay, I don't take it personally. It's okay. It doesn't hurt my feelings. So what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to remind us of why we're studying the book of Acts. Then I'm going to summarize the first eight chapters of the book of Acts to make sure we're all on the same page, right? Because the book of Acts is a narrative. It's a story. We need to understand what's going on holistically. And then, God willing, I'm actually going to preach Acts chapter 9 this morning, okay? A lot going on. So buckle up. Open with me to the book of Acts. And let me remind us, why, why Acts? Why are we as a church studying the book of Acts? Some of you know Annie and I's story. You, you're tired of hearing it. Okay, I, I'm tired of talking about it. But it's important that I remind you, we spent a large part of the 2010s as cross-cultural missionaries. And we got teleported back to this weird, strange planet called America in 2019. What we saw was so vastly different, at least from what we perceived it was before we left. Right? Whether it was the political polarization or, or anything. But when it came to us, what we began to really sense was it just seems like, generally speaking, we as American Christians have kind of gravitated towards various views of the church. So our experience, and many of you understand this, we, we as American Christians, generally speaking, not specific, generally speaking, began to view the church as like an event to attend. Right? It's, it's where I go to church. So the understanding of church is that's where we go. It's an event that we attend. Maybe we view it as a, a retail box store, 
right? I shop around for my church, and I, it fits my needs and my preferences. And when it doesn't, I'll just go to Lowe's. You know, I was at Home Depot, now I'll go to Lowe's. I'll just shop around. That, we begin to view church this way. Or I think what we can all agree that we tend to experience at times, we begin to view the church as, as a place that has just mastered the art of the facade, right? We smile. We wear seersucker and, and matching rompers for the kids. You know, I have strong opinions. I'm not going to share those today. <laughs> However, we, we've just mastered this idea of, of sports, news, weather, and everything looks like it's great, but, it, but it's not, right? We, we, it's pretentious. And we begin to think that maybe that's what the church is. We've got to have it all together before we can go to church. Or it's, a, it's just, just like any other institution or organization. It, it, it needs to be busy. So the church needs to be busy. Flurry of activities and ministries that meeting all these various needs, right? So I think if I shared some of those, you would say, yeah, we've, generally speaking, I think we've seen some of that. But what we began to experience personally, and then we began to hear from others, is that as, as God's people keep reading his word, we go, man, my experience doesn't really reflect what I'm reading. Like, there seems to be some disconnect between what, what I see the church accomplishing and doing here and what I'm kind of experiencing. So God, in his sovereignty, um, led us to CBC in Savannah and led us to Richmond Hill. And we found these people who shared a similar heart and a similar passion. And, and what we had was God providing an opportunity, right? An opportunity to plant a church and an opportunity to, to not plant a church in a way that, that redefines what church is, okay? But just to open up the word of God together. And to rediscover from God's word what the church is and what our role in it should be. So that's why we planted with Acts. August 7th, first Sunday, we wanted to open up the book of Acts and go, let's rediscover together. Let's just look at God's word and say, what is the church and what is our role in it? So that's why Acts. So right now, I'm going to take five minutes or less to summarize the first eight chapters. And if you're a cynic, and some of you are, okay, you're going, five minutes to summarize eight chapters, why do you yell at us for 40 minutes, you know, in 19 verses? Please leave me alone, okay? <laughs> I'm going to do it. We're going to summarize the first eight chapters of the book of Acts, and then we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 9. So where have we been? Where have we been in the book of Acts? In Acts chapter 1, we saw that Jesus' disciples and apostles, before the resurrection, okay? So after Jesus was crucified, after he was buried in the tomb, his apostles were, were fearful, cowardly terrified that their fate was about to be what they had just seen in their Savior's face, right? So they're, they're hiding out behind closed doors. And then you start reading a couple chapters into the book of Acts, and you see that these men are turning the world upside down, right? They're faithfully and boldly proclaiming the gospel regardless of the cost to themselves. So the question we ask on Acts chapter 1 is, what changed? Like, what happened? What took these fearful, doubting men and then moved them into these bold proclaimers of the gospel? And we saw in Acts chapter 1, we, we saw that the resurrection changed. Jesus, who they thought was dead, appeared, appeared over the course of 40 days, and he ate with them, and he talked with them, and he shared their life with them, and he opened up the Old Testament and showed them that he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures, radically changed them, right? And then in Acts chapter 1, he, he says, hey, I want you to be a witness to this. I want to commission you to go and share this good news about me, my life, my death, my resurrection in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And right before Acts chapter 2, he ascends. And upon his ascension in Acts chapter 2, 10 days later, he sends the Holy Spirit onto his apostles. Sends the Holy Spirit onto his followers. They're filled with the Spirit, which empowers them to witness to the truth of the gospel. 3,000 people are saved in the first day. That's wild, okay? Can't imagine. Really thankful that's not our experience, okay? 3,000 people saved in one day. And in Acts chapter 3, the religious authorities hated that. So they take Peter and John, the leaders of this movement, and they arrest them, and they threaten them. But God's story will always continue. 
So on the back of a miraculous healing in Acts chapter 3, the number increases to 5,000 men alone. Rapid growth. Captain of the temple and the Sadducees arrest Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, but their threats and their beatings will never stop the continuation of God's story. The church begins to pray for more boldness, more opportunities to preach the gospel. And what's beautiful about the, the, the church and what's beautiful about what we see in the church is that it's not just a, a movement. Like it's not just an outward growth, although we see that over and over and over again. What's interspersed through the first four chapters of Acts are things like Acts 2.42 and Acts, Acts 4, where we see the church not growing outwardly, but growing inwardly. Like the Holy Spirit is, is filling them not just with purpose of mission, but with love and charity and generosity. They're devoted to one another, sharing all things in common. But as we move to Acts chapter 5, remember this one, this was fun, not all that glitters is gold. Ananias and Sapphira begin to lie to the Holy Spirit, and we begin to see corruption starting to happen within the church through sin. Then, corruption begins to happen outside of the church. All 12 apostles in Acts chapter 5 are arrested, beaten, imprisoned, threatened, and without the divine intervention of one particular man by the name of Gamaliel, we think at that point in Acts chapter 5, maybe the story is going to end here. Gamaliel is important, okay? We're going to come back to him in Acts chapter 9. But y'all, the church never does. I know we're tired of saying it, but the church never stops growing. The gospel is always going to continue to go. The story always continues. But what we see in Acts chapter 6 is the old saying, mo, mo people, mo problems. Okay? Acts chapter 6, ministry begins to be overlooked because of the explosive growth of the church. They just don't have enough leaders. And what they do is they elect their first round of deacons. That's important for us too because I'm going to be presenting our first round of deacons today. And those deacons, y'all, they're more than just servers of tables. In fact, in Acts chapter 6 and 7, they too are filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel and witness to the commission of Christ. And one particular man by the name of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7 does that boldly. Full of the Spirit, performing signs and wonders, begins to faithfully proclaim the gospel. And the religious authorities can't stand it. They plug their ears because they don't want to hear the blasphemy. They rush him, drag him out of the city, and they stone him to death. In Acts chapter 7, we have the first martyr outside of the person of Christ. In Acts chapter 7, verse 58, let me read this for us. They cast this man, Stephen, out of the city, and they stoned him. And the Pharisees laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. More to come soon. But Stephen, fully convinced of his hope in Christ, as he's being pelted with stones, begins to pray, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. So turn with me real quick to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Have I done okay, five minutes or less? I think we're getting close. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Acts chapter 8 is where, where we're kind of picking up. You see at the very end of verse 7, it says, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. That's what Stephen prays. And then in 8, verse 1, it says, and Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen. They made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. And what we saw in Acts chapter 8 is that the church was supposed to expand from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then on to the ends of the earth. But at this point, they had been largely in Jerusalem alone. So persecution arises, and God actually redeems the persecution to spread his people outside of the walls of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria. What we're going to see today in Acts chapter 9 
is the spark that actually ignites the continuation of God's story to the ends of the earth. That's what we're going to see in Acts chapter 9. Let me read a couple of quotes about this, this particular passage. F.F. Bruce, a biblical scholar, said, No single event apart from the Christ event itself has proved so determinate for the course of Christian history as the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. One commentator said, For Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, said there was no more certain evidence of God's power and God's grace than in the transformation of the church's greatest persecutor into its greatest witness. That's what we're going to see in Acts chapter 9 in the conversion of Saul. All right, so let's dive into our text today. I want to read it. It's Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. They led him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. Right? Saul's reputation has preceded him. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you have come has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. The conversion of Saul. That's what we want to look at this morning, the conversion of Saul. Now Saul's conversion is actually documented in the book of Acts three separate times. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. So because it's in there three times, we'll look at various aspects of his conversion once we get to those other passages. But for today, what I want us to see is two specific things. I want us to get a glimpse of the character of Saul. Who is this man? Right? Who is this Saul? And then I want us to see the conversion of Saul. So the character of Saul, the conversion of Saul. Let's begin with the character. Using the scriptures alone, you can really piece together a pretty good character study as to who this Saul is, okay? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that for us. Looking at Scripture, who is the character Saul? It begins with his origins, the origins of Saul. We know from Scripture that Saul was born in the city of Tarsus, okay? I'm going to throw a map up on the screen just so you can kind of get a, a visual picture. Y'all, this is a real historical story, okay? He was born in the city of Tarsus of the region of Cilicia, which is modern-day Turkey, most likely in the first few years of A.D., so Saul's probably born anywhere between 3 and 8 A.D., which means to put him around the same age as Christ, maybe just a little bit younger. But we know from Scripture that his parents were, were um, uh, Jewish. 
So he was, he was born to Jewish parents. In his own words, in Philippians 3, Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So Saul of Tarsus, born to Jewish parents. But we also know from Scripture that his Jewish parents were Roman citizens. So he had citizenship of Rome, which was a highly coveted privilege, most likely purchased due to their great wealth from a tent-making business. And being their son, he would have inherited Roman citizenship as well, which is incredibly important when you get to Acts chapter 22, and he's beginning to get persecuted. Acts 22, verse 3, Paul says this, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. He's talking about Jerusalem. Okay, so Saul of Tarsus, born a Jew, but raised in Jerusalem. Many scholars believe it was around age eight that Saul and his family moved to Jerusalem. We also know from Scripture that Saul's sister and her son, so Saul's nephew, were in Jerusalem. So when Saul was in prison, Saul's nephew came to visit him, which leads us to believe his family was located within Jerusalem. All right, so you follow me with his origins. Saul, Hebrew of Hebrews, born into a Jewish family of the region of Tarsus, yet raised up in Jerusalem. And at the age of 13, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, being uh, zealous for the faith of his father, he would have been enrolled into Jewish school a place where he's studying the Hebrew scriptures, memorizing them, learning how to interpret them. And he does it, and we know this from scripture, at the feet of the teacher, Gamaliel. The rabbi that he submits himself to, to learn from, is the teacher, Gamaliel, who we read about in Acts chapter 5. Gamaliel was the most renowned and respected rabbi of his day. Those are his origins. And it was under Gamaliel where we begin to see the second aspect of his character. Okay, we have his origins we begin to see his zeal. Saul was zealous. The word zeal is just another word for passion. Y'all, this young man was passionately hungry and thirsty for the truth of the scripture. He consumed the Hebrew scriptures, memorized the books of the law, and according to his own testimony in Philippians 3, he didn't just memorize it. When it comes to obeying the letter of the law, he calls himself blameless, saying, I was perfectly obeying the letter of the law. Zealous is what he says he was. Galatians chapter 1. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. It's important, y'all, that we see this. It's important that we understand his origins and what's going on in his life because it's going to play out through the rest of the book of Acts. This was a pupil of promise. This is a student of, of high potential. He was zealous. Acts chapter 22, when he gives his own testimony, this is his own words, Saul says this, I am a Jew. Born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, which is Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. Zeal. We have to see that this man was zealous. And y'all, being zealous and knowing that part of his training, uh, as part of his Jewish training, he would be expected to frequent various synagogues of Jerusalem to read the Torah, because he was rabbi in training. So he had to be reading the Torah and then expanding upon the scriptures of those particular passages. You see, Jews, we're talking about synagogues here, Jews who lived all over the Roman world would pilgrim to Jerusalem in order to worship the, the God of Judaism. But when they got there and they went to the temple, they realized everything's being read or taught in Hebrew or Aramaic. They don't speak Hebrew and Aramaic. So synagogues would pop up all around the city of Jerusalem so that when these foreigners would come to worship, they could go into these synagogues and hear the scriptures taught in their own language. 
Saul, being rabbi in training, would be expected to go to the synagogues of his ancestral region in order to read the Torah and to expand upon the scriptures, which means he would be at the synagogues of Cilicia and Asia. That leads us to the next piece of his character. His origins, his zeal, his persecution. All right, so this is where we have to connect the narrative of the book of Acts. One day, many believe that this is a high likelihood that Saul would have gone down to the synagogue of Cilicia. And when he got there, instead of teaching himself, he hears somebody else teaching. Someone else reading the scripture, someone else expanding on the scriptures. And he's teaching that the scriptures are actually fulfilled in this Nazareth person by the name of Jesus. You know who that young man was that was teaching that day? Stephen. Acts chapter 6, verse 10 says, Many of the Jews there rose up and began to dispute with Stephen in this synagogue, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. You know, it's a high possibility that Saul was one of those arguing with Stephen, reasoning with Stephen, but he couldn't withstand the spirit in which Stephen was speaking. And when he can't be right, he's going to have to be right. So what do these Jews do to the man young Stephen? They, they, they drag him before the high priest, and, and they, they execute him. They cast their, their stones on him to kill him. And what do they do with their outer garments? When it gets hot throwing stones and they, they take off their sweaters, they gave them to Saul. Saul's standing there holding their garments, watching this young man be murdered and actually approving of that execution. Saul was a persecutor. And after the death of Stephen, what we read in Acts chapter 3 is he began to ravage the church in Jerusalem. Y'all, you, do you hear this, this, these words describing this man? ravaged he was ravaging dragging out christian men and women and throwing them into prison listen to saul's own testimony acts 22 verse 4 i persecuted the way of christ to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women galatians 1 he says for you have heard of my former life in judaism how i persecuted the church of god violently and tried to destroy it this man was a persecutor his origins led to his zeal and his zeal leads to him persecuting the church of christ now we get to Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if any found belonging to the way of Jesus Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In his zeal to persecute the church, being a persecutor in Jerusalem wasn't enough for him. He wants extradition letters to go to the city of Damascus. Y'all, that's 150 miles away from Jerusalem. Six-day journey. He and his zeal are, is willing to travel to foreign cities in order to shut down. Only one intent. One intent in the life of, the, of Saul. Shut down this sect of the Nazarene. Shut, shut, shut down this sect of Christ followers. In his own words, once again, I'm, I'm excluding here his character. Acts 26, 9 through 11. Said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all of the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Hear how he's describing himself. Fury, raging. He's ravaging the church. This man is hell-bent on stopping the story of Christ. Saul, the character, his origins, his zeal, his persecution. But there's one more thing I want to say about his character. 
when, when we get to Acts chapter 9 and we see Saul on the Damascus Road, one other thing marked him forever. He was humble. He was zealous first. He was a persecutor second, but ultimately he was humble. Look at verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Acts chapter 22 tells us this was at about noonday, midday, at the, at the peak of the sun's zenith. A light was so much brighter than the sun that he couldn't even look at him. He falls down and closes his eyes, and he hears somebody say, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Look at Saul's response, verse 5. Who are you, Lord? The word Lord there is the equivalent for sir. This is not a, an indicator of you are my master, you're my Lord, you're my savior. That's not what we're talking about. It's a, I'm aware there's something authoritative happening here. Something from heaven is happening. Who are you, sir? Like a genuine inquiry into the voice of who this being would be. Who are you, sir? Jesus answers, I am Jesus. Y'all, it's in this moment we have to pause and put yourself in Saul's shoes here. Put yourself in the shoes. Jesus says, I am Jesus. Remember his origins, remember Saul's zeal, remember his persecution. These words, I am Jesus, would have been a complete refutation of all that Saul had come to believe and all he had become in general. Complete refutation. He had persecuted Christians for the supposed blasphemy of Christ being alive. Now on the Damascus Road, he sees him face to face knowing that he's alive, knowing that he's reigning with all authority and with all power forever. Jesus, Acts 9, verse 6, Jesus tells him, rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. I think that's important for our narrative, right? Because Saul could have been having like a mental breakdown here. But he, he, he couldn't say that because all the people around him saying, no, 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 something happened there. There's some corroboration. There, there's some witnesses to what Saul's engaging. So he rose from the ground, verse 8. And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. That light was so bright, he has to close his eyes to protect himself from it. But when he tries to open his eyes, darkness. He sees nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. Humbled. Humbled. The radiance of the vision had completely reduced him. Once full of strength and zeal and energy and hell-bent on a singular purpose to kill those that worship Jesus, only to arrive to his destination frail, blind, and utterly reduced to powerlessness. He's having to be escorted into his destination, humbled. Look at verse 9. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Put yourself in the narrative here. Three days, blind dark, not eating or drinking. Y'all, he was humbled, sitting in darkness. What do you think he's musing? What do you think he's thinking about in those three days? Wrestling, trying to come to grips with the fact that all of his Old Testament reading, all of his memorization, all of his interpretation was wrong. Trying to come to grips with the fact that the system of salvation that he, that he followed based on earning your salvation through, uh, through following the law was wrong. The fact that he had rested and prided himself on stamping out this movement, y'all, he was wrong. On the Damascus Road, y'all, he was humbled, forced for three days to sit in the darkness and in the awareness that he was wrong. But y'all, not just, not just the wrongness of his beliefs, but the wrongness of his behaviors. 
What do you think came into his mind as he's sitting in darkness? I bet he just could see Stephen's faith. Hearing Stephen pray for his own forgiveness. Thinking about all the nameless men and women he had drug into prison. Y'all are just heavy with the conviction of sin. And it took his appetite away. Because if you've experienced that, when, you, when you're under the weight of your sin, who can eat or drink when you're staring down the horrors of your own conscience? Saul, you getting the picture here? Humbled. In darkness physically, in darkness spiritually. Now, as we conclude this point about Saul's character, I, I, let, me, let me give you a point of application for us as well. Church, God is, is always in the business of Damascus Road experiences. He is always working and always revealing himself to his people. Now, are our Damascus Road experiences as dramatic as this? Probably not, right? We, we, it may not be as dramatic, but the effect of the Damascus Road experience is intended to be the same. When Jesus reveals himself to you, it is to break your compulsive independence and arrogance and independence apart from Christ to bring you humbled so that you can put your faith in him as your savior. The impact, the effect of a Damascus Road experience is intended to be the same here. So my encouragement, if you're on Damascus Road, if Jesus is revealing himself to you, if he is speaking to you, my encouragement would be to sit in your darkness. Sit, think, muse around the fact of how you've been wrong, how you've dis discouraged, I mean, disowned Christ, tried to stamp out Christ, whatever it is in you, sit in that. Let it humble you, because the, the character of Saul was, was humbled. Well, let's move on to his conversion. Saul, sitting humble for three days, without sight, no food or drink, contemplating his reduction, and just waiting. Who loves waiting? Everybody hates it. Waiting, because Jesus told him, listen, going into Damascus, I'm going to tell you what, what needs to happen. He didn't tell him when. There was no duration. He's just sitting for an undisclosed amount of time in his darkness, waiting. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. All right, let me, let me say this. When I look at the conversion of Saul, this is what I want to do for us as a church. I want to draw our attention to some general principles as it regards conversion. Like generally speaking, when we look at the salvation of God's people, you begin to see some things that occur in everybody's story. Now, is everybody's conversion and salvation the same? No. I met someone recently that got saved listening to a country music song in a truck. I never thought that would be the case. Never thought. But it happens. God reveals himself in, in uncanny ways. He'll do it on a Damascus road. He'll do it in church this morning. He'll do it on your ride home today. He'll do it through a teacher, a parent. It doesn't matter. God will reveal himself to his people. All conversions are different. But there are some principles we see in the conversion of God's people that are generally applicable to everyone. So here's the first one I want to call our attention to. When we see the conversion of God's people, we see the conversion of Saul, God always utilizes others. God always utilizes other people in the life of his, th those that he's saving. And in this case, it's Ananias. He d directs Ananias to help Saul make sense of, of this vision. And think about your own testimony really quickly. Like, who was it for you? When you put your faith in Christ, like, who, who helped you do that? A, a parent? A, a teacher? A co-worker? A pastor? You know, it doesn't matter, but he always utilizes people. So who is this Ananias? 
Ananias was apparently a devout and pious Jewish Christian. We see that in Acts, uh, Paul's own words in Acts chapter 22. But y'all, he never appears after this. Th- this is it. Th- this is the only thing we know about Saul, that he was obedient to Christ and helped lead Saul uh, to, to salvation. You know what that tells me? This guy was, was n- nothing special, nothing extraordinary, just a faithful follower of Jesus faithful follower of Jesus. Do you know that that's all it takes for you to be deeply used by God? All it takes just to be faithful in your following of Jesus. And y'all, Ananias was. And his commitment, his faithfulness to Christ is revealed in his response, right? God says, Jesus says to Ananias um, in, in a vision, and how does Ananias respond? He says, here I am, Lord. Right, sounds really similar to Abraham. Before Abraham is going to sacrifice his son Isaac, God speaks to him and he says, here I am, Lord. It's, it's very similar to Samuel who's cultivating a voice of God in the house of Eli when God whispers to him, he says, here I am, Lord. Here's Ananias. Jesus speaks to him and Ananias says, here I am, Lord. Just a few chapters ago, I mean, just a few verses ago, God reveals himself to Saul and Saul says, who, who are you? Ananias reveals, a, y'all, he reveals a familiarity with God. Like he, he knew God. He had cultivated knowledge of God's voice. So when God came calling, Ananias knew who it was, knew how to posture himself in response to that. And I just want to drive that home. If you want to be used by God like this, cultivate a familiarity with God. Get to know God. It's just what Coleman preached last week in Colossians 1. We have to spend time with him. We have to get to know him so that we can live a life that pleases him. All it takes is to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Just be obedient. Cultivate a knowledge of God. God will use you. And in the conversion of his people, he always utilizes others. So Ananias' response, I got to speed up. Ananias' response pleases God. He says, here I am. Look at verse 11. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. When it comes to the conversion of his people, this is point number two. Jesus is always involved in the details. Jesus is in the details. We have a joke in our house that God plays chess with our lives while we play checkers. We say it all the time. You think you know, right? You think you've planned it all out. You got it all figured out. But he is just laying out the details in order to engage your attention and draw you to himself. David in Psalm 139 says, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. God knows the details of your life. He knew that Saul would probably be here st- hearing Stephen in that synagogue. He knew that Stephen's prayer for forgiveness would goad him, as we're going to see in Acts 26. He knew the street that Saul was staying on. He knew the name of the host that was hosting him. He knew what Saul was doing in that very moment, which was what? Praying. Y'all, I find that significant. I just want to take a break for a second. Going to Damascus, breathing out threats of murder, humbled, sitting in darkness, breathing out pleas of mercy. Saul praying. Church, God knows the details, and he will orchestrate your details. He will orchestrate the, the, the details of your life to draw you to himself. He is always in the details. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. Put yourself in Ananias' shoes for a second. Uh, excuse, excuse me? Hang on now. Let's, we got the same Saul. Let's, let's talk about this for a second. I've heard about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name 
Lord, did you not forgive me? Forget. I just said, here I am, Lord. Like, I, I call on your name. And this man has authority to drag people like me back to Jerusalem. But what's the Lord say to him? Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Here, here's the point for us about Saul's conversion. When it comes to the conversion of God's people, church, it is always divine election. It is always divine election. Go, for he is chosen. Now, next week, we, we're going to dig deep into his commissioning and dig deep into what does it mean for him to be an instrument of God. But for our time this morning, y'all, we have to see when it comes to the conversion of God's people, you're chosen. God has chosen you. That, that word election, y'all, we get, we get our feathers ruffled up. You're going to email me? I know, I'm going to get an email. But listen, all it means, God chose you. All it means is that when you come to salvation of yourself, you did not save yourself. He saved you. You didn't call on him. He called on you. That's all it means. Paul would say it later like this in Galatians chapter 1. When he who has set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. Paul would say in Ephesians 2. And you, to the church, were dead in your trespasses and sins. Let me prove the doctrine of election real quick. What can dead people do? Nothing. You were dead. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. What can a dead person do? Nothing. But God, being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, because of the great love with which he loves you, even when you're dead in your trespasses, he makes you alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you have been saved. This is not your own doing. You didn't choose God. He's chosen you. That's all the doctrine of election is. And that imperative to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. That, that seems to be enough for Ananias. He obeys. Look at verse 17. I'm going to speed up. We're, done. We're, we're four minutes from being done, okay? Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he says, Brother Saul. It just sends chills up my spine. That man's coming to kill me, my family, my people. But all it took was God saying, no, 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 he's my family now. For Ananias to say, I'm with you. That's the love of the church. That's the love of Christ working in the lives of his people. He says, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road, which you came and has sent me to you, that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. When it comes to the conversion of God's people, he fills us with his spirit. He fills his people with his spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes to reside in you, y'all, many things happen. I don't have enough time to talk about it all, but it's going to feel like scales are lifted from your eyes. You begin to feel like you're seeing things, the heaviness, the oppression, the confusion, all of it's going to be lifted. Paul says it himself in Ephesians 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Galatians 4, he says, when God sends his spirit into your hearts, you begin to cry out, Abba, Father. There begins to be this relationship, this access to the Father because the Spirit's in your life. First, 2 Corinthians 1, Saul, again, is writing about the filling of the Spirit and says, he puts your, his seal on you, and he gives his spirit to you as a guarantee. The filling of the Holy Spirit authenticates your conversion. And as he lives in you, as he resides in you, as you learn through discipleship to live according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh, the Spirit will continue to testify to the reality of your relationship with him. And he'll continue to mold you like Jesus. I heard someone in our church recently go, I don't know what's happening, but I'm changing. I'm changing. And kept talking about that change. And then, and then spouse begins to weep because it's like it's true. Something's happening. I, let me tell you what's happening. Scales are falling off. The Spirit of God is beginning to fill your life. Verse 18, I, I told you four minutes. Give me six. 
And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight and he rose and was baptized. Last point, when it comes to conversion of his people, we respond in baptism. Respond in baptism. We're not baptized to be saved. You're saved, you're converted, you're filled with the Spirit. Saul was filled with the Spirit and he rose up and he demonstrated that obedience, demonstrated what had just happened in him through, through baptism. Baptism is saying, I'm dead to the old way of living, and because of Christ, I'm alive in the new way of living. He demonstrates through baptism. So let me conclude for us. The character Saul, stooped in the Old Testament scriptures, rising in the ranks of Judaism beyond all of his peers. So zealous was he, he became a persecutor of the church. But on the Damascus Road, he was humble, ultimately converted. But hear this, church. Instead of writing letters of extradition, he begins to write letters that sound like this. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ, set apart for the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul, called by the will of God. 1 Timothy 1, though formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I have received mercy. Galatians 1, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond all of my own age. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Hear this. But when he who has set me apart before I was born has called me by his grace. Extradition letters to letters of grace. Here's what I want you to do. Coleman showed you our, our, our bookmark, 90 Days with Apostle Paul. This is what we want for you. If you didn't get one last week, grab one this week. They're out on the tables out front. Make sure you get one. It's a chapter of, of Paul's writings a day for 90 days. And there's actually some, some catch-up days built in there, okay? Everybody, you're okay. it's okay to miss a day. I don't want you to, but if it happens, if you miss a day eating, do you just stop eating? No, you pick it back up. Keep reading, okay? Spend some time with the Apostle Paul. And I believe that as you spend some intentional time with him, you're going to be changed by the grace that he writes about. You're going to be transformed like he was. So let me pray for us, and our team will lead us through a time of response, and then I'll come back up here and talk about our deacons really quickly. <coughs> Won't you stand with me while I pray? Father, we are deeply, deeply grateful for testimonies like this. Just as F.F. Bruce said, just, just as other commentators say, when we look at the life transformation in the person of Saul, how could we not believe you are real? that you are alive, that you're in the business of redeeming and reconciling and restoring people for your glory and for your name. Lord, I think I, I speak for all of us in here. Thank you for your salvation of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for all that he has meant in his service to you because you set him apart by your grace, because you chose him to be an instrument of your, thank you for the ministry that, that has done for the churches of the ancient world and for CBC Richmond Hill today. Lord, I pray for our people. I pray for this church. I pray that if you have any of these people on a Damascus road, that they would invite us in, that we would be used by you in the service of that. We give you all the glory in the church. In Jesus' name.